Thank you for listening to the Abundant Life Sermon Podcast. Abundant Life is based out of Lee Summit, Missouri and has campuses throughout the Kansas City metro area and online. We want to see your life changed by Jesus. In this series, The Church, an Ancient Future, we are casting vision for a future church that will be relevant in a changing culture by learning ancient truths from the early days of Christianity. For more information about Abundant Life, or for locations and service times, visit livingproof.co. Thanks for listening. Church, good morning. So good to see you wherever you're worshiping from. We're so thankful that you have gathered with us. We are in Matthew chapter 5 this morning. We're going to finish up a series we've been in called The Church, An Ancient Future, because we're studying the ancient church and those steps to the past to help navigate the future as the modern church of Western civilization. I've said recently, we're no longer living in a way that is mainstream in society. Christianity, historically, in a Judeo-Christian civilization, has been mainstream. Those days are over. Society has changed. No longer living in a Judeo-Christian civilization. It's become Greco-Roman. It was the society of early Christianity pluralistic theologically, and anything goes mentality morally. And so consequently, we have an ancient future as we navigate the future of the modern church by studying the path of the ancient church. You may come today and going out, why is everybody singing to Jesus and they seem so excited to be here? You know, the reality is we have a Savior that is not dead. He's alive. How many say amen? That gives us something to sing about. Hope is alive. And if you don't know him personally, listen, he didn't come to give religion. He came to give something far better called redemption. It's not what you do for God that gets you into heaven, but rather what God has done for you through the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he died for your sin, that he rose again. This was and is the message and mission of the church. It's never, ever changed. But what do we do now for the first time really in the Western Hemisphere? where it feels like Christianity is increasingly less and less mainstream. There are many Christians getting washed downstream. It will feel like forever we're swimming against the stream. You see, that's how really Christians felt in that Greco-Roman world where the church was born and Jesus in Matthew 5 on the Sermon on the Mount, he's teaching them how to change society from the inside out. He didn't come for a political revolution. He came and launched a spiritual revolution. And in that manner, he said these words, Matthew 5, 13. He said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. He said, you're the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. He said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. I want to talk on this subject this morning. We must aspire to be the salt and light of society in an age of ideological idolatry. Now, I'm going to talk about in just a minute what Jesus meant practically to be the salt and light of society. What does that even look like? What was Jesus really teaching on a practical level? I'm going to put some handles on that for you. But first, let me define what I mean by ideological idolatry. We're living in a time of ideological idolatry, much like the early days of Christianity, a divided Roman society. It was very much an age of tribalism and division that Christianity was born in, in first century Christianity. And much like now the 21st century, a society that's increasingly angry of hostility and animosity. And the reason why, I'm convinced, is ideological idolatry. Now what is this? Ideological idolatry is the mentality that if any part of a narrative is true, then it's all true. Or if any part of it is not true, then none of it's true. And so consequently what happens is you see our civilization kind of starting to break apart because there's no shared identity, there's no shared story, there's no sense of a shared history. So consequently, you kind of break into camps of ideology and ideological idolatry. And what that happens is you begin to cherry pick the facts and ignoring other facts to advance your narrative. And this is what we see happening now, I'm convinced, in 21st century America. And here's the reality, guys. Ideological idolatry always distorts reality. 
It takes part of what is real, distorts it to a point where it's not real. It's, it's unreal. So it looks something like this. So most of you know, if you don't know, like my tribe is the University of Kansas. I'm a member of the Jayhawk Nation. Thank you. Other godly people at Abundant Life today. I was worried I'd be the only godly person here. Okay, so I'm not. So I have blood and sweat equity in the Kansas football program. Of course, they're my team. That's my tribe. So did you know last year in 2020 that my Kansas Jayhawk basketball team was ranked number one in the country going into the NCAA tournament? They were ranked number one, and they were undoubtedly going to go to the Final Four, maybe even win the entire thing and be crowned national champions. Now, of course, you know what happened with COVID is the tournament was called off, even though they were partway through already. And so the season ended with my Kansas Jayhawks ranked number one which means we were the national champions 2020. Everybody agree? Makes sense, doesn't it? Of course it does. What am I doing? I'm kind of cherry picking some of the facts that support my narrative, even though you might argue, no, there was no champion in 2020. Nobody was crowned. Uh, Here's another example. So I played Kansas football back in the late 80s for a guy named Glenn Mason. A lot of people, so long ago, nobody remembers, but I was there. That's right. And I'm convinced personally that Kansas football actually has a far better football tradition than the University of Missouri. In fact, I can prove it. Now, I know that Missouri has gone to 33 bowls historically. Kansas has gone to only 12 bowls historically. But before there was the football playoff system we have now to crown a champion, you know, back in the day, it was the BCS Bowl Championship Series, of which Kansas went to a BCS Bowl back in 2008, the Orange Bowl. And did you know Mizzou never went to a BCS Bowl ever in history? That makes Kansas football better than Mizzou football. (laughs) What are you guys laughing at? I'm being serious. See, ideological idolatry is when you are so committed to a narrative that you'll start cherry-picking facts and arguing for this facts while ignoring all the other facts. Now, listen, it's kind of fun and funny if it just has to do with our football teams and basketball teams. Like, we can disagree and still show up to work tomorrow and probably work together just fine. But what if that ideological idolatry is so serious that it's actually dividing society? and create increasingly animosity, polarization, division. See, that's where we are now as a civilization. And that's why we have a society that's increasingly angry and uh, it's full of hostility because everybody's broken up into their tribes and it's tribalism. And this is how serious it is. So I was in South Sudan several years ago visiting a global partner that is there, and we support a ministry there, and we have a food bank and a food distribution center that's there, one of the most uh, uh, poverty-stricken countries in the entire world. Like, I got off the plane in Juba, which is the capital city of South Sudan, and it was like stepping off into another planet. I've never seen anything like it, and I've been all over the world. There's like a half a mile total of paved road in the entire country. Juba, the capital city, is like a sprawling village of a half a million people. Very little electricity, very little running water. That's the kind of thing, right? So I had a meeting that week with one of the high-ranking government officials of South Sudan. He's a godly man, a very Christian man, and, and I had a meeting with him, and I asked him this question, what has kept your country from really building the infrastructure and uh, really emerging out of poverty? And this was his exact word one word. He said tribalism. The tribalism goes back centuries, he said, and the tribes hate each other. They will not work together. He said that's the problem. What's happening in our civilization is tribalism. Uh, where we break up into our tribes and it's us guys against those guys and those are the bad guys and we're the good guys and we can't agree and not be enemies. See, that's what's happening now. And the reason people can't disagree without breaking into their tribes and declaring enemies is because of ideological idolatry 
and it's a distortion of reality. And I would suggest what's going on out there has even affected the church in here, where Christians begin to break up into their various tribes. And I said something a couple of weeks ago, I'm going to say it again. We must decide in this age of divided loyalties and allegiances that our number one priority, our number one loyalty is the kingdom of God and the multi-ethnic family of God. Jesus said in Matthew 6, seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And so what that means is we have to decide as the church that it's the family of God, the multi-ethnic family of God, that's my tribe and Jesus is my chief. Yes, I have a nationality. Yes, I have an ethnicity. I might even have a political party or I might see the world through the lens of human philosophy. But if I don't decide, my number one lens for viewing the world is the kingdom of God. As a member of the multi-ethnic family of God, I will fall prey to the ideological idolatry of our day. Now, I'm going to show you what I mean. I'm convinced this ideology can really be framed today from two years that represent two different Americas in American history. Two different years from two different Americas. And this is a lot of why we talk today about history because how you define the past deeply affects how you see the present. And so the first year is this year right here. It's 1619. This is the year the first African slaves were taken from Africa against their will to the new world in an English colony, 1619. I don't know if you know it or not, maybe you've heard that Time, uh, the New York Times recently published in 2019 what is called the 1619 Project. It's a curriculum that many public schools are now using. It's a curriculum to prove that America was founded as a racist nation and that racism is at America's origins, and by nature, we are a racist nation. That's kind of the reason they published this curriculum. Now, here's the reality. There's an element of truth. Maybe there's a lot of truth to that. Look, it is impossible to ignore the fact that America has a horrible, horrible blotch and blemish in its past, the depravity of American slavery. It is impossible to ignore that fact. It's impossible to ignore the fact that even after, generations after the U.S. Civil War, that African Americans and other people of color were subject to a system of oppression and injustice and segregation. It's called the Jim Crow laws. It is impossible to deny that. And heaven forbid that we should. There's a reason for these types of projects because there's a part of American history that has been left out largely from American history classrooms. Like I I grew up and I paid attention to history. I didn't pay attention in every class, I admit it. Like when they started adding letters to numbers and called it math, I checked out. But history, I love history. I I always loved history. When all the other kids' eyes were glazing over, man, I was dialed in. I love history because you can't understand the present without understanding the past. The past tells you how you got here. And I wanna show you how we got here as a people so we know how to respond as God's people. And the reality is there's a lot I didn't know. Like I remember being in my 40s the first time I ever heard about the Tulsa massacre. And I'm a student of history. How did I not know about this? I remember thinking to myself, how did this get by me? I mean, this happened only 100 years ago in 1921. It's not like it's ancient history. It happened only 250 miles from where I grew up. How did I never hear this? Well, I never heard this because I was never taught this. So I want you to see the element of truth to this narrative. There's an element of truth here. But what happens is we begin cherry-picking the facts. When you're so committed to an ideology that it becomes idolatry, it begins distorting reality. So part of this curriculum teaches that the real reason for the American Revolution and the reason the colonists went to war with England, the real reason was to preserve the institution of slavery. And that, friends, is categorically, undeniably, absolutely false. That's a distortion. In fact, that assertion has been debunked by many historians, most of which are very sympathetic to black history. That's just not true. But even though it's been proven false, they still haven't removed that 
from the curriculum. See, that's the nature of an ideology that becomes idolatry. You start cherry-picking the facts and start ignoring other facts. Now, there's another date. If we're going to assert that the origins of the United States really isn't July the 4th, 1776, with the Declaration of Independence, it's actually 1619 when the first African slaves were brought to the New World, then we might as well assert another date, another year, it's 1620. I don't know if you can see the date etched in this stone, but it's 1620, and I personally took a picture of the stone when I went to Plymouth, Massachusetts recently. This is Plymouth Rock. And if you ever go to see it, it's a little bit underwhelming. <laughs> like, I was expecting to see a boulder. It was anything but a boulder. It's about the size of maybe um, the windshield on your car. But this is supposedly the rock the pilgrims used to draw, draw a plank and lure a plank as they stepped off the landing boats into the new world. And I'm standing here in front of what is called the Mayflower II. The Mayflower II is a replica of the Mayflower the pilgrims sailed over on from England to the new world. And the Mayflower II was actually sailed from England to Plymouth, Massachusetts in 1957 and given from Great Britain as a gift to the United States for us entering World War II. And this gives you an idea of the ship the pilgrims would have sailed on. Now, this is what I want you to see. You've got the 1619 narrative. You've got the 1620 narrative. Here's the Mayflower Compact. The reason these pilgrims came, listen carefully, they were religious refugees. These were not oppressors. They had been oppressed. They were fleeing religious persecution. And here's what it says in the Mayflower Compact of which they signed before they got off the boat. In the name of God, amen, we whose names are underwritten. The loyal subjects of our dread sovereign Lord King James, by the grace of God of Great Britain, France, and Ireland, King, defender of the faith, having undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. He said, this is why we sailed the sea and made this voyage, for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith and the honor of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia. And I want you to notice something. These people were not racist. They were religious. These people didn't come here for greed. They came here for the gospel. And I want you to see that we have been taught it's one of these two narratives. It can't both be true. Like the truth can't be somewhere in the middle. Ideological idolatry says you have to choose a side. When what history says, listen carefully, America is America the beautiful, but she's also America the bad. See, these are both true statements that America was founded by Christian people to be a Christian nation, and America was founded by sinful people as a sinful nation. Yet ideological idolatry says it's one of the two. You either see America full of virtue or America the villain. You either see America the godly or America the greedy. And I want you to understand that if we are honest, both of these Americas has always existed at the same time. Yet we live at a time of great cultural divide. We live at a time because of ideological idolatry that says, oh no, you either believe in the 1620 America or the 1619 America. You either believe in the America of the pilgrims who were religious and they came to establish a Christian civilization, or you believe in the 1619 America that was racist and built out of greed and not God. And I want you to understand the reality is that it's both and it's always been both and it will always be both, yet we have been taught that you have to choose a side. And the reason I'm convinced this matters to the church, not just you and I as American citizens, but rather kingdom citizens, citizens of heaven, is because what has happened out there has infiltrated in here. And that's why so many churches, instead of standing against the stream, have been washed downstream. And I want you to see the move of God, the move of God versus the move of man. The modern social justice movement that many churches have embraced is not a biblical movement, it's a political movement. The civil rights movement, which was a biblical movement, not merely a political movement, but rather a biblical movement. 
versus the new modern movement, the social justice movement. Now what happens is people hijack biblical language to use it for their own purposes. Christians are for justice. Christians are for equality. Who could not be for those things? Well, what happens is the terms are redefined. So biblical justice, what is it? Biblical justice, this term in the Hebrew is seen over 200 times in the Old Testament. One of the reasons God judged ancient Israel was because they started to oppress the poor. Uh, the classic verse you think of when you hear the term justice comes from Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly before your God. What happened is they quit doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly before their God. They started oppressing the poor and God judged them for it. The poor are very near to the heart of God. So what does it mean when it says do justice? Well, it can be seen biblically in the Old Testament practice, and here it is. In the ancient days of Israel, which was a, not like you and I, a representative democracy, it was a theocracy. In the ancient days, God told those who had fields at the time of harvest to allow those who didn't have fields to come behind the harvesters, and they were to be allowed to pick up the grain that had inadvertently fallen on the ground. And what happened at the time of Micah, the people had quit practicing that. Those who had fields... We're not allowing the poor to come behind the harvesters and pick that grain up from off the ground. God said, it's just, do justice. It's just that those who have should share of their resources with those who don't. It's just that those who have fields would allow those who don't have fields to come behind and pick up the grain that was the overflow of the resources. And God judged Israel when they quit practicing biblical justice. Biblical justice in our modern realm would be, for example, our food pantry that sits here in Lee Summit that gave away 1.2 million pounds of groceries a year ago to over 40,000 individuals in our city. That's biblical justice. Biblical justice, for example, would be almost a thousand of you last week who went on your own time, spent your own money, and used your own energy to go to the grocery store, and you bought a turkey, and you bought all the sides, and you bought the pumpkin pie, and you put it in a box, and then you brought it to our church where we disperse Thanksgiving dinners among families in our city that might not have otherwise been able to afford a Thanksgiving dinner. You did that freely and generously. That's biblical justice. That's what it looks like today. But what is unbiblical justice? Listen, those who do not understand, biblical justice will eventually choose anti-biblical solutions for the problem of injustice. And friends, there are no political solutions to spiritual problems. And what we see happening today in Western civilization are political solutions that really aren't solutions to spiritual problems. So what was once a biblical movement now becomes a political movement. So what is the new social justice movement? How does it differ from the biblical justice movement well, today, it would look this way. Where God said, if you have fields, you're to let the poor come behind your harvesters and let them pick up the grain from the overflow of your resources. It's just that those who don't have should have something from those who do have. What it would look like today is we're gonna take away the fields from those who have fields, and we're actually gonna redistribute the fields among those who don't have fields. That doesn't sound like justice, that sounds like injustice. That sounds like government theft. That's called Marxism. Now church, when I talk about Marxism, I am not going political on you, I'm going biblical on you. I told you a couple of weeks ago, the church is not to be a political action committee, it's a spiritual move of God, not a political move of God. But Marxism is something different. Marxism is not simply a political system. It is a worldview. It is a religion. We're not talking about traditional American politics of the right and left. We're not talking about Republican versus Democrats here. 
See, in a liberal democracy like our founders set up, there's a set shared of core values. Whether you're Republican, Democrat, left, right, you share a set of core values that made America the society we are, beginning with the First Amendment. That was freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of press, freedom of thought. But what we now see is what we commonly call the cancel culture. I mean, even though you haven't lost legally the freedom of speech, there's an intimidation that if you say something that is contrary to popular opinion, you're going to get canceled. See, that's cultural Marxism. Cultural Marxism is simply the opposition and the oppression that we see now happening in cancel culture where people get canceled for something they might have said 25 years ago. Doesn't represent who they are today. That's not the point. See, cultural Marxism uh, doesn't legally do away with the First Amendment freedoms we have as Americans, but culturally, the intimidation is just to stay silent instead of say something. And cultural Marxism is what always precedes legislative Marxism, where now you legally don't have the freedom of speech that you used to. Here's the reality. Marxism always is anti-religion. Marxism always makes war on religion, which is why anywhere in any society, Marxism becomes the system. It always ends freedom of religion. If you haven't done this yet, you need to get on our podcast. It's called The Watching World Podcast. A member of our church by the name of Daniel was raised in the Ukraine, born in the Ukraine, behind the Iron Curtain, under the oppressive government of communism of the former Soviet Union. And he tells the story being raised in the 1980s under this Marxist world system. Remember, Karl Marx said that religion is the opioid of the masses. And so henceforth, any time a society begins to minimize the role of God, it begins to maximize the role of government. And government recognizes that a people controlled by God cannot be controlled by government. That is why in the USSR, you could go to prison for nothing more than being a Christian. I want you to meet one of the great heroes of the 20th century a kingdom hero. This is Daniel's father and mother that I got a chance to meet a few months ago and have coffee with. He was a leader in the underground church in Russia and the Ukraine. His father was a leader in the underground church of Russia and the Ukraine. Daniel tells the story of his grandfather going to prison on multiple occasions for just being a Christian. Joseph Stalin murdered 20 million Russian Christians. Mao Zedong in 1957 that launched the communist revolution in China murdered 100 million Chinese. See, it always makes war on religion because God is seen as the enemy. And the church is seen as the enemy. And it's an amazing story. Daniel tells the story of how his father would be gone for months at a time because he was dispersing covertly and secretly copies of the Bible throughout Russia. And they had this homemade printing press, but they needed tons and tons of paper to run one run off the printing press. But to go buy paper in bulk, you'd get red flagged by the government. So he'd be gone for months going hither and thither, city to city, store to store, buying paper one package at a time until they had enough to print the Bibles where they would then disperse among the people. This was going on for generations at a time when Christianity was illegal under this Marxist governing system. That's what I want you to see. Jesus made a promise in Matthew chapter 16 that regardless of the system, regardless of the persecution, regardless of the opposition, he said that upon this rock himself, he'd build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail. And this man is evidence that the gates of hell could not prevail. You need to listen to that podcast. Because what Daniel has asserted that some of the same Marxist ideologies that swept Russia and most of Eastern Europe away into darkness in some capacity, we're seeing the early movement toward just such a system. 
You see, what happens, if you don't have a biblical sense of justice, you'll choose an anti-biblical response to injustice. And what happens every time, church? In an attempt to overcome oppression, you yourself become an oppressor. And that's Marxism. See, Marxism doesn't end oppression. Does anybody really think Joseph Stalin lived on the same level as the Russian peasants? It doesn't end classism. It doesn't bring equality. It just makes everybody the same. You see, it doesn't do anything it promises. And this is what I want you to see in some way. This is what is happening, and this is what is unique from the biblical civil rights movement to the movement we see today. What was the dream of Dr. King? It was an amazing dream. It was a biblical dream. It was a gospel-centered dream. It was a dream of reconciliation. You can still YouTube it today. One of the greatest speeches ever given in 1963 when he said, I dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slave owners and the sons of former slaves would sit together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream. It was an amazing dream of reconciliation when he said that one day I dream in the state of Alabama that the hands of little black boys and black girls would be joining with the hands of little white boys and black and, and white girls. I have a dream, a dream of reconciliation. You see, this new move is not about reconciliation. It's about retribution. He said, I have a dream that one day my four little children will live in a country where they can be judged not for the color of their skin, but the content of their character. That is a noble biblical dream. But the dream has been hijacked by well-meaning people, even Christian people, hijacked in this way where you're no longer judged as an individual for the content of your character. No, you're judged now for the group you were born into. And the critical theory, which is, again, ideological idolatry says you're either this group or this group, and you don't get to choose. You're either an oppressor or you are an oppressed. And if you carry any of what amounts to the majority demographic, that makes you an oppressor. I carry all five, by definition. Like, I am the worst oppressor of them all. Because I carry all five of what amounts to power. I am white, I am male, I am Christian, I am heterosexual, I am cisgender. For those who don't know, I identify with the gender assigned to me by my chromosomes. I'm cisgender. And see, because those are all part of what accounts to mainstream or majority, because I carry all five, I'm an oppressor. I don't get to choose. And that's not the dream of Dr. King. The dream of Dr. King was that you get to be judged individually, personally, not for the group you were born into or the color of your skin, but rather the content of your character. And so consequently, in our hope to overcome injustice, we've chosen political solutions to spiritual problems which only perpetuate more injustice. There is no solution. It only fosters more and more division. And this is where you and I come in because if I understand as a Christian, my number one priority, my allegiance is not to my nationality, not to my ethnicity, not to my political party. My allegiance is to the kingdom of God and the multi-ethnic family of God, I will not defend what I should not defend or fight for what I should not fight for. This was the early Christians. They didn't look at themselves in terms of their nationality. They knew they had a new citizenship in heaven. They didn't look at themselves in terms of their ethnicity and my tribe versus your tribe. No, they knew they were part of the kingdom of God. And this is what changed the world, not a political revolution, but a spiritual revolution because they embodied something the world had never seen. Galatians 3, verse 28, that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We're all one in Christ Jesus. You see, Jesus has overcome the oppression. He's overcome the injustice of classism or racism or in some capacity even sexism. We're all one in Christ Jesus, and what the world could not do, Jesus at the cross has done. 
He's torn down that wall of sin and separation between God and men. And what the wall was torn down by Jesus, the world has tried to rebuild again and again. And this is where you and I come in. This is what Jesus was teaching in Matthew chapter 5. That we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. So what does that even mean? First of all, we are the salt of the earth. The salt is God's word. It's the truth of God's word. Look at what Jesus said in verse 13. You're the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. What was he teaching? Listen, salt is a preservative. It's the truth of God's word that preserves society from moral and spiritual decay. What Jesus was teaching is that we're not just to stay in here where it's safe and pick up the four walls of our church and build them higher and wider and just throw verbal hand grenades over the top and talk about how bad the world is. No, he said, you're the salt of the earth in the same way salt preserves something from decay. In Jesus' day, salt was not just something you used to season your steak. Salt in Jesus' day was something used to preserve your steak from decay. And Jesus was teaching you and I are the salt of society, meaning we're to take the influence of the gospel, we're to take the kingdom of God with us wherever we go, and the truth of God's word in some capacity preserves society from moral decay, preserves society from spiritual decay, wherever you work on a Monday. You take the kingdom of God with you, the truth of God's word with you, into public education, into the halls of Congress, into the governing system, into that public school classroom, into that public school boardroom, in that corporate boardroom, wherever you find yourself, the influence of Christians ought to be in some way that we bring the kingdom of God with us. That's the salt of society. And we live at a time where society is in decay, morally and spiritually, anarchy. And it's because we fail to be salty. See, we've been silenced. What is the salt? The salt has to do with what you say. The salt has to do with what we say. Speak the truth with grace. This is what the Apostle Paul said in Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Notice what he said. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, not the other way around. In other words, don't talk with a lot of salt and season it with a little grace. Meaning, it's not simply what you say, but how you say it. The goal is not to win an argument. The goal is to win a heart. Meaning, let your speech be with lots and lots of grace, seasoned with just a little bit of salt. Now, here's the reality. Salt stings an open wound, doesn't it? There's a reason people hate the truth, because sometimes the truth stings. But salt had a medicinal purpose in Jesus' day. Salt was for cleansing an open wound. Society has an open wound that can only be cleansed by the salt of God's word. And yes, people hate the truth because the truth hurts and the truth stings, but it's the truth that brings healing. It's the truth that brings a cleansing, and that's what we need, a healing and a cleansing. And you and I carry the salt with us. Wherever we go, I'm talking about the truth of God's word. Do it with grace. Say it with grace. Listen, you don't change anybody's heart. You don't change anybody's mind when you go on Facebook and you post the zinger. Yeah. This age of memes and cliches. Look, there's things I know I could say right now, and 80% of you would stand to your feet and applaud and say amen, but the goal of preaching is not just to see how many will already agree with me and say amen when you hear me. No, the goal is not to say how many thumbs up can you get on your Facebook page. The goal of the salt is to change the way people think. It's not to see how polarizing you can be along the way. So say it, speak it, Don't stay silent, but do it with lots of grace and do it with lots of love. Now, here's the problem. I'm telling you, cultural Marxism, here's where we are. Nobody wants to be canceled. Everybody's fearful of being canceled. Well, if I speak the truth, 
maybe I'll get canceled. Here's an example of where we're going as a civilization. Well, a lot of people don't even know it. Christians don't even know it. One of the priorities in the legislation in the first 100 days of the Biden administration was to pass H.R. 5. It's called the Equality Act. It's the Inequality Act. Because what's happening is sexual freedom is now eroding religious freedom. You don't have to take rights from one group of people to give rights to another group of people, but that's exactly what is happening. If this legislation should pass, it would make it illegal for churches like ours that simply believe what the Bible says about marriage, about sexual morality, matters of genderism. It would make it illegal for churches like ours that have a biblical statement of faith to discriminate in hiring, for example. Even though we believe that living in a gay or lesbian lifestyle is sin in the eyes of God, we would have to hire, theoretically, somebody who's living openly in a gay or lesbian lifestyle. Now, currently, it's cultural Marxism. What does that mean? It means I've been called a hater, I've been called a bigot for simply believing what the Bible teaches about that. And because nobody wants to be a hater, nobody wants to be a bigot, a lot of people stay silent. See, that's the cultural opposition. Nobody wants to get canceled. So instead of saying something, we say nothing. It's just one example. And what happens is, Cultural Marxism precedes legislative Marxism where the day is coming where I, who preached the message like I did two or three weeks ago, I don't know when it was, it was so awesome, can't remember when it was. <laughs> simply, this is what the Bible teaches about marriage. Did you know that in the UK and in Canada, pastors who simply have preached openly on biblical marriage have been arrested and taken to jail? No one could have ever fathomed that just a generation ago in the Western Hemisphere for doing nothing more than preaching on biblical marriage. Arrested and taken to jail. That's called Marxism. Where suddenly you don't have free speech. But what's happened is because we're afraid of being canceled, we've quit using our free speech. Before we've even lost free speech. Because the worst thing you can call me is a bigot or a hater. Listen, we don't hate anybody. If you're gay or lesbian, we, we love you. We care about you. We want you to know Jesus and follow Jesus. And you are welcome among us. Every single one of us have sinned over and over again. And we're all desperate for redemption. We don't think we're better than you are. We all need Jesus. We all need Jesus. But this is what the Bible says, and God hasn't changed his mind. Now, here's the reality. That's going to be outlawed, theoretically, if this legislation passes. And I just, to be upfront with you, the moment the truth is outlawed, I will become an outlaw. I've made the decision. Cancel me. This was the early church. This was the decision they made. They literally got canceled over and over again because their way of life and their worldview was radically, radically different. Do you understand what made the early church so relevant is that they were different, and only since the church has quit trying to be different have we lost being relevant. Instead of standing out, we're now blending in. And I'll just be upfront with you, listen. I've come to the conclusion that I don't care if you cancel me because there's nothing I have in this world that I really have to have. So you're only worried about being canceled if you're worried about losing what you have. And when you come to the place in life where you really are motivated by the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of this world, by the things of God, not the things you have in this world that you've accumulated in this world, now you can start living fearless and you'll be the salt in that public school classroom. You'll be the salt in that corporate boardroom because you got nothing anybody can take from you that you need. Listen, church, I got a lot to lose. I know you do too. 
I'm preaching from a beautiful 2100-seat auditorium, but 21 years ago, I was preaching in a little broken-down brick building to less than 100 people, and I would rather start over and go back and preach from a little broken-down brick building to less than 100 people than to compromise one word of the Bible. I'm not trying to be the next Christian celebrity. It means nothing to me. I don't need you to like my Facebook. I love you deeply. I I care for you infinitely. I really, really do. But I don't need you to affirm me anymore. I just, I've come to the conclusion nothing else matters but Jesus. For me to live is Christ. And only then are you really set free. And that's the early church. They were free because they did not see themselves as a citizen of this world. They knew that one day soon they were gonna see Jesus and then nothing else was going to matter. But it's not just the salt of God's word, it's the light of God's love. This is what changed the ancient world. This is what Jesus was teaching in verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Notice Jesus associated your good works with the light of heaven. Meaning, it's not just what you say, it's what you show. It's not just what comes out of your lips, it's what comes out of your life. We put it at our church like this, being living proof of a loving God to a watching world. And this is what Jesus was teaching about being the light of the world. The salt is the truth we say, but the light is the love that we show. It's God's love on display. People are merely changed by what we say, but rather what they see We are addressing racial reconciliation with the gospel as we go into the crossroads in the urban core of our city next year. We're building relationships right now with the Kansas City School District. Here's an example of what I'm talking about. So they have something called the Welcome Center where refugees come from all over the world and students begin assimilating into Kansas City in the Kansas City School District. We asked them, what can you, what do you need? We're just here to serve. So this just happened recently. This is an example of being the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. They said, we have students that are coming from around the world, but we don't have any deaths for them. We need 60 deaths for these students that are immigrating from the nations. So because of your generosity, because of your biblical justice, we were able to buy 60 deaths and write a check for $24,000. See, that's biblical justice. You do that out of your own free will. Nobody's making you give when you give to abundant life. This is what you allow us to do, biblical justice. And what does that do? It allows the light of God to so shine And it's not simply what we say. It's one thing to say, we love our city. It's another thing to actually show the love of God to our city. And this is what Jesus was teaching, that together we're a city set on a hill. Like individually, I have one little light to shine. But together, think about together what is possible. We can light up an entire region of the world with the love of God. And that is what the early Christians were able to do. The world was changed, not simply by what they said, but by what they did. And it's amazing to read the excerpts and the manuscripts of ancient historians as they observe this this new movement, this religious whatever it is of, I think they call them Christians. Here's one. It comes from about 130 A.D., the second century. It says, they dwell, Christians, they dwell in their own countries but simply as sojourners. Like, They're not citizens of this world, wherever they live. It's like they come from another world. As citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country and every land of their birth as the land of strangers. They marry as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. Christians have always been what we call today pro-life. Recognizing, unlike the pagans, 
that we are created in the image of God and it's sacred. The pagans would abandon their babies they did not want to die in a ditch and Christians were seen actually going and retrieving those babies, raising them as their own. They do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. This is what made them unique. They would share everything they had, but they wouldn't share each other's mate. That was radical for the ancient world. They live in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They're poor, yet make many rich. They're in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They're evil spoken of and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. Man, I can't stand those Christians, but I don't really know why. All they do is good to everybody. To sum it all up, one word, what the soul is to the body, that are Christians to the world. And I would suggest that if America loses its soul, it's because America will have lost its Christians. America is looking to a false savior. America is looking to a counterfeit God to come save our situation, and there is no Savior but the true and living God of heaven. My friends, there are times for spiritual or, or political legislation, but what we need is a spiritual revival. That's the only thing that can save us, a move of God, of true biblical proportions, historic proportions. I'm talking about first century book of Acts, Christianity. What made it so unstoppable against all odds? The world was watching and the world was changed by what they saw. They were changed by Christians when they saw their scars. The pagans had gods. They wouldn't die for their gods. Their gods hadn't died for them. They worshiped their gods to appease their gods, but they had no sense of loving their gods, their gods didn't love them, but these Christians, man, they've got a different God, like they are living proof of a loving God to a watching world, does that sound familiar? And they were changed when they saw the scars and the sacrifice of these early followers of Jesus. Like they got a God worth dying for. The Apostle Paul signed off his letter to the Galatians like this in Galatians 6, 17. From now on, let no one cause me trouble because I bear on my body scars for the cause of Jesus. He literally bore the scars of having been beaten for following Jesus. From now on, let no one trouble me. You know what he was saying to put it in our vernacular? Cancel me if you want to, I don't care. I'm done defending myself, I got nothing left to say. I'll let my scars speak for themselves. And those scars did speak loudly. The pagans saw those scars and they were changed by what they saw and I'm convinced the world is still watching but the world isn't being changed by what they see because the American church doesn't bear any scars. We have wanted a faith that demands nothing a faith that costs nothing, and a faith that demands nothing, will do nothing, that costs nothing, will accomplish nothing. And I'm here to tell you today that until you have a faith worth dying for, you don't have a faith worth living for. 
And when we begin to have that kind of faith, the world will watch and they will be changed by what they see. His name was Tertullian. He was born a pagan in North Africa, converted to become a Christian about 195 AD, became an early church historian. He is famous for these words, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Anywhere historically the church has thrived, it's because Christians have been forced to die. But anywhere in the world Christians have been left to thrive and stay alive, the church has slowly died. If the church in America dies, it's because we have chosen to save our lives. And I'm trying to tell you today, today is the day to make the choice. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, whatever cost, whatever comes. I want you to sit and listen and watch and read. You're going to see some quotes by real martyrs down through church history that have given their life for the cause of Christ. I want you to just reflect on your life for a moment. What are you willing to give? What are you willing to sacrifice? What scars are you willing to bear for the cause of Christ? Jesus, that is our prayer. Freely, we give ourselves away. I pray, God, for a revival, an awakening, a move of the Spirit of God all across this land, all over our city. Lord, I know there's a shaking, there's an awakening, there's a sifting even now going on in the body of Christ. And I pray the true believers would stand up. The born-again men and women of God would stand up by bowing down and surrendering all that we have for all that you are. So many others have gone before us sacrificing so much for the gospel. Lord, that we might sacrifice a little. Jesus, I pray for each person here, each person listening and watching online, that God, you would help each of us navigate Decisions we never thought we'd have to make. 
complexities of 21st century American society. Where it feels like it's increasingly hostile toward the gospel. Help us to love our enemies. Help us to pray for those who Jesus has spitefully used you and bless those who would persecute you. Help us, Lord, to be that kind of church as the early church, to be willing to bear any scars. And I pray people near us would be changed not simply by what we say, but by what they see. I pray, God, for the filling of the Holy Spirit, for the power of God to be among us, that, God, your grace would be abound upon us. And I pray for thousands and thousands in the days ahead, in the months ahead, in the years ahead, thousands and thousands and ten thousands and thousands of people in our city and around this country who don't know you personally, God, that their eyes would be open to know the joy of Jesus, the true and living, resurrected Son of God, that they too can become a part of the kingdom of God and the multi-ethnic family of God. God be glorified among us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, I love you deeply. Would you give Jesus the glory with me today? Praise him, would you? I hope you have a super blessed Sunday. God bless you. God go with you. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure and subscribe and share with a friend. We hope today's message inspired and challenged you. Let's go be living proof of a loving God to a watching world. For more information about Abundant Life, visit livingproof.co or follow us on social media at Abundant Life LS.